Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakalik, and today I have a very special episode because this episode is a compilation of the first 12 interviews I've done with people from Pender. Now, the reason I've decided to do this is because I've been getting some amazing feedback from people on the island. Thank you to everybody who's had some kind words for me. And within that feedback, I've heard from a few people that they listen to episodes of people who they know and aren't really drawn to listening to episodes of people that they don't know. And I can totally understand this because it seems that we're drawn to listen to stories from the people that we do know. And we don't really have a association or a connection with the people that we don't know. However, part of the reason for doing this is to help people get to know some individuals on the island that they may not know otherwise. Also, it being the Canada Day long weekend this weekend, I've seen a lot of off-islanders coming to the island. And I thought, huh, most of these people probably don't know any of the people I've interviewed so I thought it might be interesting to spend some time on this rainy Saturday to put together a compilation so people listening can get to hear a little tidbit from each interview and maybe get to know that person just a little bit better and be intrigued enough to listen to the full episode, which I hope they do because I'm really proud of all these interviews that I've done. And I'm going to continue to do them. And I hope that as many people as possible listen to these. And for those who do listen, thank you so much for spending your valuable time listening to these interviews. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I've broken down the clips into sections. The first section is people responding to the first question I asked them, which is what brought you to Pender Island? The first person to answer this question is Sandy Olson. The second is Julia Nichols, who describes meeting her future husband, Gregory, as her reason for moving to the island. And lastly is John Martin, describing how he and his wife, Emily, came to move to Pender recently from Winnipeg. All right, here's Sandy, Julia, and John, describing what brought them to Pender Island. What brought me to Pender Island were about 75 to 100 eagles. Don, my husband, and I were debating and deliberating on where we wanted to move from Victoria to. We were torn between Cortez Island and Pender Island. We had narrowed it down. And we had friends on both. And there were pros and cons to both. And we were looking for land to buy. And we'd been to both islands a number of times. We had sold our house in Victoria. We were in a rental for a year before we decided and moved here. And we were sitting on the sun deck in the summer talking about, okay, we need to decide today because we had to give our notice and so on. So we're sitting there and I said, okay, well, let's talk about Pender. So we were going back and forth talking about the pros and cons. And I said... We need a sign. And Don said, I agree. We need a sign. So we're sitting there. And for some reason, I looked up and it was completely quiet. And there were about 75 to 100 eagles flying 
about maybe a hundred feet above us. And then I said to Don, look at all those eagles. And he looked and he said, are you sure they're eagles? Maybe they're turkey vultures because that'd be weird if they were eagles. We went and got the binoculars and looked, they were eagles. So that was that. <clears throat> wow, that's incredible because I, I don't think I've ever seen anywhere near that amount of eagles flying Neither together. have I. Wow. Except for maybe out at Goldstream when the fish are spawning and they're eating salmon. Sure. But other but they were a lot of young ones. There were a lot of them and they were completely silent and they were just soaring in circles all around each other. It was un, very unusual. That's interesting. So what what exactly did it mean more than just like, okay, well, this is the most amazing thing I've seen in forever in nature. Like, But did it mean something more than that in particular, like the eagle representing something? Or was it just like this, this is a phenomenon? That well, I we can... were just talking about wanting a sign and... How cool of a sign is that? Yeah. <laughs> you can't really ignore a sign like that, I don't think. I've never seen anything like that since or before then. So that was a good enough sign for me. Gregory. I met him in 2003. Uh, the first time I laid eyes upon him was when he was in a production of uh, Twelfth Night. And I saw him come out as a priest, and I really, really liked that character. And they did a really neat thing where they had everybody walking up through the woods afterwards, and they could shake the hands of all the characters in the play. It's very cool. And I stopped at the priest, and I wanted to tell him what an amazing job he did of acting. Uh, but there were people behind me, and I couldn't stop very long. Anyhow, the next day I was at the ferry terminal and I was picking up a friend and there was only one person there at the whole ferry terminal. And he was standing there looking out and I walked up to him and we started to chat and I didn't recognize him as the guy in the, in the play. And, but we had the most amazing conversation and the ferry was coming and my friend was coming and I wanted to push the ferry away because I wanted to continue to talk. And he asked me for my phone number so that we could meet up. And um, the problem was this friend was coming for the day and then we were going home together. And so she was only here overnight and for the next day. And I couldn't leave my friend to go on a date or anything. So he said, and then I said, you know, she sleeps in big time. So first thing in the morning we could meet. So I said, okay, I took my number and where I was staying, phoned me up, and he asked me if I fancied a walk. Nobody's ever asked me if I fancied anything before, <laughs> but he asked me if I fancied a walk, and I said yes, and we met next morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. We went for a walk. Where'd you go for a walk? Around the Clam Bay Loop. It's a famous walk on Pender along Port Washington Road and Clam Bay Road. It's a whole loop. Okay. And what was the weather like that day? Beautiful. Beautiful. Everything about that day was so beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So you meet up for a 6 a.m. walk with him and uh, you go and what did you guys talk about that day? Oh, we've gone over that and we've tried to figure that out. What was our conversation? I do know the point where I was telling him that I had been to this wonderful play and I'm not into Shakespeare at all, but there was this priest in the play who was really, really amazing. And I remember the place and he turned to say, that was me. <laughs> and
And it was. It was him. We housed out on Pender Island in March of 2015 for a week or so. And we were over in Victoria walking the boardwalk on Dallas Road, I believe, and set firm intentions. Like this was like ultra manifester creator. Like we visioned it. It was, it was real. Like we're going to live here. We're going to live here five years. Like we have anything to do with the time in, in which things show up. We don't. We may. I'll get to that. And so five years we set, we'll go and do some things in Winnipeg, gain some equity, move out of here, have some, have some freedom. Four months later, we got another uh, email from the lady that we were house sitting for on Pender saying, hey, would you like to come and house sit for us in January of 2016, but this time for three months. So immediately it was, no, you're crazy. Um, that's what Emily and I were saying to each other. But really, we were saying this lady's crazy because she's in, in, implying that we're going to give everything up and come out to a small island. Um, of which I'd never loved, li- uh, left the city. I'd never moved it, uh, lived in another city. Emily had lived all over the place. She was a little bit more comfortable with it. And I came home one night and she said, I think we should do it. And I said, no, that's crazy. Um, no, that's scary. That's crazy. That's not responsible. All these things that I had learned through my life as to how to perform in life and behave in life and the actions I needed to take or should take, obligated to take, were coming up in question. All the things that I had learned through my teachers, my parents, my educators, uh, the media, the politics, everything about safety and comfort, the pensions of the world. Go get that pension. All of that was coming into question. And I went into a still place. I went into my heart and my heart said yes. And I started crying and the tears started flowing. And I knew that was a good sign that it was like, yes. And the precursor to this is that we had read a book, a very powerful book. And anyone who's listening, who's looking for a great book on saying yes to things, The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer, who also wrote The Untethered Soul. And Michael says that in order to become peace with the world or become aligned with the flow of the world, we have to say yes to the things that present themselves because the things that present themselves are our dreams or creations manifesting. And if we say no at any point along the road, it's going to try and ask us again, but we're just delaying things. We're delaying the inevitable. Our dreams are trying to show up. And so by saying yes, we did say yes. And I think we had just had the baby or just about to have a baby too. So we had to get the house really ready, really, really quickly. Uh, it's sold within like two weeks for of us departing. We sold our car a day before we left. Our daughter was three months old at the time. It was a very scary thing. We gave up our jobs. We had nothing. We had the equity from our house and just like a dream that this was supposed to happen. So we said yes. We moved out to Pender and we didn't really know what to do. But now that I, I, I told you at the beginning that I've, I've said this a bunch of different ways, but really the essence of it is Pender Island was the place where our dreams were ready to take off, were ready to unfold. 
All right. Next up, I have a compilation of people describing things that they've done in their life that they're proud of. First up is Shelley Easthope describing her involvement in the Conservancy of Medicine Beach. Next, I have Jewel Roper describing her 30-year career as a recreation therapist. And lastly, I have Sarah Connolly describing what it was like for her and her husband to build their home on Pender Island while their firstborn Sam was still an infant. Here's Shelley, Jewel, and Sarah. Well, when we moved there, Medicine Beach, that whole area was owned by a family, the marsh, and then the upland that you can walk up now. Uh, it was all owned by one family. And they had been approaching the trust for years, wanting to donate the marsh portion in return for subdividing the upland portion, just so that they could divide it between two parts of the family. So they wanted to be able to divide the upland portion in half so that you know, they could share it in their family appropriately. And that just didn't fit in with the guidelines we had in terms of bylaws and so forth. In fact, they told me eventually that they had tried, I think it was seven times they'd approached the trust about doing this. And every time they'd gotten absolutely no cooperation. So they made one final attempt to do this. And the trustee who was elected at that time Instead of just saying no, he said, well, you know, I can't do anything about it, but maybe you want to talk to a couple of people who really have an interest in that area and let them have a look at it with you and see if there's something we can come up with. And so I had been very vocal. There was a proposal to have a pub uh, where Medicine Beach Market is now. And I'd been very vocal against that because it didn't feel like the appropriate use of the land for that location. And I'd learned a lot about the marsh. And, and one of the things was that it was the sole remaining part saltwater, part freshwater marsh intact in the southern Gulf Islands. Wow, in the entire southern Gulf Islands. Yeah, okay. and that's because those areas are usually dredged. They make great marinas, right? So that's what happens to them. And in fact, this family told me they'd been approached many times by people who wanted to purchase it to become a marina. So it was in danger of having that happen. But this family recognized the importance of it. They recognized the value of it as it was, and they didn't want that to happen to it. So their names were the Atkins, the Atkins family. They had a big publishing firm in Vancouver. So they spoke with us. It, it turned out that Carl Hampson and I were the two people that the trustees recognized as maybe being willing to have a look at this proposal that they'd made. And they chose me just because I'd been vocal in this campaign to say no to the pub there. And perhaps that's what they knew about Carl. I don't know. But at the time, he was also the first president of the Island Conservancy Association. That probably played a role in it as well. Anyway, after talking with them we figured the first step was to survey the property and see actually what we were talking about. So we walked it with a surveyor and the surveyor said to us, wow, this is so beautiful. Why don't you just buy the whole thing? And Carl and I, I remember just looking at each other and going, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, why don't we? <laughs> and so 
So that's what happened. And he took it to the conservancy. He took uh, the proposal to, to fundraise and to buy this whole parcel of land. Now, of course, they gave the swamp part, they gave free, sort of as a donation, and then we bought the remaining part. He took that to the conservancy and they voted yes. There was a, yeah, a huge amount of support from the community to go ahead and do that. Nice. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating to hear that story because I've been down to Medicine Beach. I can't count how many times to watch beautiful sunrises come up there just to sit by the water. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just sort of don't understand the story that or the stories that go into creating spaces like that. That's incredible. That's great. That must have felt like a real big victory for it you guys. It really was. I mean, it was hard work. It was about a year out of my life really working at it because before the fundraising campaign was about six months. But before that, we put in a lot of time to just get people to get it going. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was hard work. And there were a lot of people involved, huge number of people. But it was also a very community building experience because we we had fun doing it. And we, you know, it really brought the community together to actually purchase a piece of land we purchased as a community. I had the best job on the planet. I've always been an educator. I've taught from kindergarten to fifth year university, but I had the job of being an educator of recreation therapists, people who laugh and play and know the value of leisure and play and want to work with people. And uh, it was a beautiful career. I did it for 30 years. Okay, well, tell us more about that. So they encourage people to laugh and play, is it? Well, they use leisure and recreation to help people heal from no matter what. For example, the whole Paralympics. Um, that's how I met Tim Frick, by the way, who followed me to Pender Island. And Tim um, taught with me in therapeutic recreation for a while. He was mostly a coach. But I think of the Paralympics as an example where people are using, in that case, sport, um, to heal, to feel better about themselves, to achieve things, to win, to, you know, challenge themselves. And then rec therapy works in mental health, it uses fine arts, it uses music, it uses crafts and painting and art to help people with mental illness, you know, with depression. And really, as it turns out, almost any of us can, you know, any everybody on Pender Island uses therapeutic recreation um, you know, we go for a walk and we look at beauty and the scientists tell us that our immune system is strengthened. So there's tons of research of the value of doing what you love. Sure. Well, you said you did this for 30 years, and I, I just want to stick with this for a little bit because it obviously it was a huge part of your life. But can you give us any more details about maybe some some key experiences you had with that part of your life? There were so many. I mean... I was a pioneer, so I helped build a profession. I wrote the bachelor's degree mostly on Pender Island, most of the courses, because it was a window to put it through. I had a student that took a young man with a spinal cord injury and this most interesting machine into Nepal, and they climbed huge amounts of Everest, like I can't, you know, the lower part of it. There were so many, like there's so many stories, I guess, about what my students did 
that help people, the whole parasailing group, you know, people that are, you know, in wheelchairs being able to sail their own boats. People, a young woman with depression who was suicidal, who learned how to swim and then decided if she could do that, she could go back to college and then on and on and on and her life changed. And I... I was just in the right place at the right time. I don't even know anything about playing myself. Truthfully, I was, Jordan, my son, always said I was much too serious. So I taught them, of course, the counseling parts and the psychology part of what they were doing. The whole thing inspired me. And you said that you pioneered this because you said earlier that you uh, you wrote the bachelor's degree. Well, we had a diploma for many, many years and we were the only one in Canada other than a small uni- college in Alberta. And we kept trying to get the funding and the ministry support to have a degree. And finally, we Douglas College itself became degree granting and was able to offer seven degrees. So now there's a bachelor's degree in therapeutic rec. One of my students is a PhD now in therapeutic recreation, and she teaches at Dalhousie. So there you go. That's a significant thing I feel very good about. So we moved from a diploma, and there's now, we don't at Douglas, it only can offer baccalaureate degrees, but people have gone on to do their master's and PhD. And no one even knew what rec therapy was as a profession um, 30 years ago. It wasn't even a profession. So it's just an infant. It's like the beginning of nursing or OT or... And they work in corrections. I can tell you about people who are working in prisons and having people do things that they love. And it just gives them so many strengths that they can go on to heal them, heal, and then go on to make their lives around work and family better. We built the house 10 years ago. Positives, huge learning. I mean, there is so much learning about each other, uh, how deep you can go into pushing yourself to, we're going to get it done and we're going to have this beautiful home. And then, you know, our family's going to grow and all our family's going to come and visit us. And we wanted people to be comfortable when they came and visited us. We couldn't accommodate people for overnights and whatnot in our little cottage. We also wanted to have another child at some point. And so we knew that we needed to expand and it's extremely hard because you can't get all of your supplies here. So oftentimes you're going to town to pick up and you're dealing with ferry and there's huge costs in building a home. So there's financial strain and stress, but you get something that you ultimately want. It's like everything that you want, you've mapped it out. So the goal is so you want it so bad that you're just willing to keep pushing and pushing. I would tell anyone to build their own house. I mean, I think that I would tell them honestly some of the setbacks that are involved, but it's so rewarding. Yeah. And in terms of when it's finished and living in the house, because I know for a number of people on the island have spent numerous seasons living in a trailer while the house is being built and the difficulty that comes with that. But what's the feeling when it's done? Yeah, expansive, especially if you're living, you know, in a tiny 500 square foot to bridging out. It felt Sam had his first sleep in the new house straight through the night. So we could tell that probably the refrigerator had been keeping him up all night for that first year of his life. It was just a big accomplishment as a couple 
to be able to come together with minimal scratches and to have it as a legacy to say to our kids that, yeah, we did this and we did it because we wanted to create memories here and to have more family come and stay with us. There was so many people involved in it too. We had friends help us. We had family help us. And so it felt really good to invite them and say, hey, thanks. Thanks to your guys' help. This is what we did together. That was great. Yeah. I think what we can learn from this experience as well, too, is that if you have a newborn that's having trouble sleeping, you don't need to build a new house. You might just need to get a new refrigerator. <laughs> Good one. All right. Next up, I have three interviewees describing interesting or extreme circumstances that have taken place within their life. First up, I have Kelly Irving describing an important travel experience that happened to him. Next, I have Todd Bullitt describing his passion for freediving. And lastly, Bruce Butcher, who, while working as a journalist in Alberta, was dared to ride a bull, which he did. Here's Kelly, Todd, and Bruce. 1997, I'd done fairly well because uh, I, I was hired on the crew that uh, built the hall. I was one of the few paid employees, which is a, a real stroke of luck. And I was working for a fellow, Michael Barnes. We'd built uh, Carl Hampson's uh, barn, his engineering uh, barn there. So I'd had city work there for a, a while, and I'd saved up some money. I guess we were laid off in the fall of 97, or maybe I just decided I want to travel. I can't remember. But uh, I took off for uh, Mexico with a friend. I was going to go for a long, long time. It ended up being four months, I think, four or five months. That's a long time. Yeah. It wasn't as long as I initially wanted to go, but it was really good. It was, uh, went to Mexico, Guatemala, um, touched into Honduras, uh, Belize, and, um, uh, the fellow I was traveling with, we parted company in, Pretty soon after we arrived in Mexico, went our separate ways. So I think that was probably the first time I'd traveled totally on my own for a long time. So it was really good. Yeah, I learned a lot, saw a lot. Nice. And so traveling on your own, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was pre-internet. So, you know, carrying a lot of guidebooks around, <laughs> uh, had way too much stuff in my backpack, I think. And I still have a Guatemalan blanket that... I'm now amazed I carried it home because it must weigh like 20 pounds. And I was older than a lot of travelers. So it was, it was, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. I had nothing to fall back on. It's like, you know, when you're living Pender, you can fall back on your friends and family, you know, if you live in one place. And, but when you're out there in the world on your own, well, you just, you, and it's like they say, you can't, uh, the valley's not really greener over there because you carry all your own crap with you. So I discovered that some of the stuff that I was blaming on or as living or my job or whatever was totally me. It's, you know, I was packing that around with me. So I think travel's pretty amazing that way. You get to learn something about other people and about yourself at the same time. I had some acquaintances, like mutual acquaintances with the RCMP when I got here, just from my work with the Coast Guard. And that was a blast, just making some common like friendships. Uh, Ron Parker was a great friend of mine with the RCMP, and we did some fun things together. So it was like 
we kind of share that same like take it to the next level type of attitude. So what do you mean by take it to the uh, next level kind of attitude? So here's a great example. When I met Ron on a call at one point, the hovercraft came over and he was, it was a call, I think it was on main Island falling in the water and there was a transfer. Anyways, I met him on uh, main. We kind of, um, recognize one another from Pender. And so when I moved to Pender, it was like, now we got time to, to hang out and do some fun stuff. And I had been telling him about how I wanted to get into free diving. Cause I was like, at that point in my diving career, you know, I was wearing like, you know, 60, 80 pounds of gear just to get to the bottom of the ocean and walk around. Like, you know, when it came to like safety diving, a lot of the work you, you walk on the bottom, like you're looking for somebody. So you walk along the bottom for your search. So I wanted to get back to like this purest style of diving and that to me was free diving. So the one thing about free diving is like you just can't do it alone. You know, you can't, you can't you can't push your limits of holding your breath going down to the bottom of the ocean without somebody there. <laughs> so I saw Ron and I said, "Hey man, I want to get into this into free diving. You want to give it a shot?" So of course he was in. You need kind of specific gear to free dive, but in the meantime you can use the basic stuff. So we go out and kind of do what I would call like free diving, snorkeling, you know, just go out and swim down to the bottom of the ocean, kind of learn like the nuances of free diving. And for me, it was like, especially like having grown up diving and then getting into diving for a profession, like it was a whole new chapter of diving that I didn't know was out there. And it was refreshing because except for like extreme commercial diving you know offshore or something i was like i kind of got i get the gist of diving and i think like i've explored the different avenues of diving and this was like a whole new realm and it was kind of counterintuitive it's like you're going to take your dive into another level by using far less gear and getting into your own head you know it's a matter of like meditation it's like where meditation and like athleticism hits the road like where they meet so we started free diving it was like as soon as we got into it, it was like, okay, hey, now we need the proper fins. You know, we you can't use a, a scuba diving fin. You need like a three foot long fin. So it's like, okay, so we get these fins like, okay, now you need a proper weight belt. Because like a standard weight belt, it just doesn't like shrink and expand as you go down to the bottom of the ocean. So it's like, we take it to that level. It's like, okay, now we need to go. Let's see how deep we can go. So it's like, you know, as you're getting better and better at like meditating, slowing your body down and becoming efficient with your kicks, you're like going deeper and deeper. So it's like... It was a classic kind of type A thing where it's like, you know, you're hitting 50 feet and it's like, oh man, we can hit 50. Well, let's, what's 55, what's 60, kind of keep going. So it's like, we went out on this dive one day and it was like, all the conditions were good. Everyone, we were both feeling great. We were diving off a boat and it's like, you drop this anchor and you follow the anchor line down and back up. So we took turns like going deeper and deeper and like Ryan came back up after this dive. (laughs) He could kind of like like sputter out the depth because he's out of breath and i was looking at him his lips were like as blue as could be like this guy is like brain dead practically just high-fiving me because we were hitting 100 feet and that was the kind of thing where it's like you know you got that friendly competition like pushing one another and you can achieve like some amazing things and the thing i loved is like you go down to the bottom of the ocean and there's no because you don't have the equipment like the regulators and the cylinders and all the clanging and the bubbles it's like the most peaceful you know you just got this kind of like you know the pressure of the ocean around you and all the animals aren't scared of you because you're not 
this weird, noisy thing. And it just took diving to a level that was like, you know, almost a little bit spiritual. It was like I'd finish, uh, you know, a couple hours of free diving and just feel like absolutely centered and calm. It was the best. I loved it. I was in the middle of the rodeo area in Alberta, Wild Rose Country, big rodeo circuit. You can't get an award-winning photo at a rodeo. You don't deserve to be taking sports photos. Yeah, that was my very first photo award for a bull riding photo. And he said at one point you got to you got to ride a bull. The going joke was I was two weeks before my wedding, so it was like my last chance out, right? If I'm in a cast, the wedding's off. This is my last chance to escape. But it was done on a dare. And because I'm just, I don't think things through sometimes, I guess. I used to go to a rodeo, take photos of the cowboys, run back to the newspaper office, develop the negatives, scan the negatives. We weren't quite at the digital age where... I could get the same quality photos digitally as I could with film, but we didn't have to make prints. We could scan the negatives. So I scan the negatives, print off a sheet of what, I, what the photos look like, go back to the rodeo and try to get the riders I need so I can put the names in the paper below the caption. And they always give me a hard time. Like, oh, you call that a photo? And ah, you try getting a photo of your sorry butt on a bull for five seconds. And uh, yeah, one day a guy's like, next weekend, I'll take the photos you ride the bull. I'm like, yeah, sure. Morningville Rodeo? Yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. And uh, yeah, a week later, I'm on the back of a, I'm just about to go on the back of a bull at a rodeo. It had been ridden the day before. Bull's name was Copycat. Uh, it was a 1,500-pound bull. Had one horn going up one way, one horn pointing the ground. And uh, I'm just about to go into this little chute they just sit in before they open the gate. And the guy goes, now, watch out for the kiss. I'm like, the kiss? It's like, nobody told you about the cowboy kiss? I'm like, are you going to try to kiss me? It's like, no, cowboy kiss. That's when the bull jumps up, puts its head back, and it's ass forward. I'm like, okay. He goes, well, that makes you go forward into the back, into the back of the bull's skull. He goes, your face will hit the back of that bull's skull. You're following me. I'm like, yeah, I'm following you. Um, the bull's head's bigger than my lap, right? Uh, wider than my lap. And he goes, oh, yeah, people get their teeth broken, noses broken, face crushed from that. Just keep your eye on the back of that head. Don't let it hit you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Now I got something else to worry about. And then the gate's open and I'm out. Wow. <laughs> so how long were you on the bull for? How long did the ride last? I was on for about seven seconds. Yeah. Um, I wasn't spurring as hard as the Cowboys do for points. I, w- I was just hanging on for life. Yeah. We got really close to this big black iron fence. And I'm like, he's going to scrape me off in the fence. Yeah, I'm bailing. And I just bailed off the back. And I did have a good face plant in the dirt. And the, the rodeo clowns did a good job of luring the bull away from me. And I uh, figured I wouldn't do that again. So for anyone who has not listened to any full-length interviews yet, there's two traditional questions that I make sure I ask in each interview. The first one is, what brought you to Pender Island? And the second one is, who's helped you along the way on Pender? In this next segment, we have Nia Williams and Gary Goodman describing the people who have given them help on Pender Island. Also, they give some context and some shape for some of the intricacies and intangibles that the island holds. Here's Nia and Gary answering the question, who's helped you on Pender Island? Everyone. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) it's true. I feel really heartened and blessed by everyone here. Everyone. I was particularly moved when I first came to Pender by 
a group of older women who feel like they kind of became my mamas and they would hold circles for different ceremonies and events and blessings. And they, they were really significant in my life when I was still, I was still a young mom at that point. I just had Noel and I feel really strongly that they were actually they they helped me as a woman as a as a mum to become who I am and what I value and um I'm really grateful for them. They taught me things that my mum never did and infused wisdom for me or showed offered it offered me a different way of looking at the world that I'd never experienced before. So I feel really grateful for them. One of them was um, Pamela Brooks, Pamela Barlow Brooks. And um, there was quite a few of them actually, (laughs) but her in particular, uh, we became fast friends and I loved her very much. She was probably my best friend on Pender for a long time. I actually only got to know her for four or five years and she was instrumental in showing me beauty in life, in the everyday, in um, singing to sheep and riding bicycles with no shoes on and working in a garden and loving art and music and um, meditation and just moving through the world a little more slowly than I ever had before. And she loved my children like fiercely. And I learned a great deal about being a human being through her. Wow. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Pamela Brooks, but the way that you're speaking, is she no longer with us? Yeah. She passed away. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, Do you remember the first meeting you had with her? Oh my gosh. I totally do. (laughs) My first meeting with her was, um, so I've had a few different jobs on the island. I've been an elementary school counselor. Now I'm a high school counselor, but I've also worked for trails on the island and I've done gardening and landscaping and I've worked at Islanders restaurant and Hope Bay restaurant. And I also used to work for the post office delivering mail. One day I was delivering mail and I was pregnant with Isla and I wasn't prepared on being pregnant again. And I was, and I'm very grateful to have her as my daughter, but I was very sick in that pregnancy and quite beside myself with fatigue. And it was pouring rain. Like I, I mean, the sky was falling down onto the earth, pouring rain. And I was coming up from South Pender just past the school making the turn to go up to the driftwood. And there was Pamela walking along the side of a road. I think she actually even might've had her bicycle and she was just dripping and she had her thumb out. And so I pulled over and she hopped in. I think, it, I think we did. She had her bike, checked the bike in the back somehow. And, um, she said, how, how are you? She said, I'm Pamela. And I said, I'm Mia. And I just started crying, sobbing hysterically so much that I had to pull over the side of the road before I made the turn. And she asked me what was wrong. And I just said, I felt so depleted. I just felt like I, I didn't know how to keep going. I was just exhausted and so fatigued. And, and she said, 
right, let's go to the driftwood. So I said, yes, that's, that's where I'm going. Okay. And she said, okay, well, you're going to come home with me after you've finished your shift. You take the mailboxes into the post office and you'll come home with me and I'm going to make you some buckwheat patties and some turmeric tea. Really? She said, yes, I'm also going to sign you up for two yoga classes and um, then we'll see where we go from there. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, oh, it's most. Really? <laughs> okay, but I was so vulnerable that I kind of just went with it. And from that point on, she just became this love in my life. She was just a total joy. And um, her, her love was ferocious at times and big and and broad and beautiful and bountiful and yeah, I don't know. It was it was something else. That's incredible. So it sounds like she gave you a large amount of nurturing in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nurturing is a good word for it. Total nourishment and and um and I I spent a lot of time with her. You know, when I uh, I think about why people come here and uh some people come here to fix themselves and other people come to find themselves. And, um, some people come here to help other people do those things. And, uh, every once in a while you run into someone who is here and, you, and they have great joy in going out of their way to help someone else. And they will take the time to do that. And later they will point to someone else that, you know, and say that person there was like this, but now they're like this because Someone cared for them. Now they're caring for someone else. And it's almost like a, a pass it on kind of deal. You know, when I showed up here in 86, even though I was an alcoholic and I didn't really register as that, I knew I had issues. I knew I had drug and alcohol problems and I came here to party. Truly, I did. And I came here because it was a safe place. I had a good job. I had a job and a place to stay. And when I hit that wall in 1987, people came out to show themselves to me and some of them would offer me a drink two days after I I'm definitely not going to drink again. Three months later, they would offer me a drink. And I took it all in stride because I was the kind of person that would quit drinking and then three months later uh, start drinking again. So I was a good quitter. I quit many times. and uh, But this time when it stuck, it was because it was a, <clears throat> a big difference in, in the events that came up to the, the very last time drinking binge I had. But the people that came to me and offered me support many, many people. And I think they could feel that I was there for, to do just that, to, to get better. And so I didn't come here to get better, but I needed, once I did make that decision, the people that helped me, um, I got to say that, uh, if it wasn't for Leela Tattersall, uh, I don't think I would be here now. She got me here the first time I was here with uh, her husband and the band and then as a bartender, she uh, allowed me on my first year anniversary of not drinking to be a bartender at Port Brown and Marina. And her mother, Lou, they were they were kind and generous to me. And it took me in at Christmas when no one else would. And um, I think they know this, but uh, sometimes I, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, they are truly a part of my family. I'm, Lila has been so good to me. And we don't talk a lot anymore these days. We, but when we do, it's a genuine talk of sincerity and and uh, love and care. And we we hug it out and we remember the old days. And we've gone in different directions, but she totally um, made this a worthy endeavor for me to be here. That she opened doors to 
changing people's minds about who I was and uh, trusting me where no one else would. And uh, that trust is now spread out over 30 years. And um, I'm a very happy person. And um, she helped me get that way in the very beginning. All right, everybody, we've got one more clip to come at the end here, and I'm going to leave that for Victor Zorman to give the last word. Thank you very much for listening to this, and I really appreciate people tuning in and listening. It really means a lot to me. And if you've enjoyed this and you want other people to hear it, by all means, please share these episodes, and in particular this one, because I think that this is a good introduction to the podcast for people who have not heard it before. So now I'm going to leave the last word to Victor, who at the end of his interview, I asked him, what makes you happy? Thanks for listening, everybody. Here's Victor to close out the show. Well, it makes me happy. Petting a pup. Dogs make me happy. Um, the new, my, my, my new girl makes me happy. Waking up in the morning and, and knowing that the day is going to be a great day makes me happy. Going to bed knowing that you've had a great day makes me happy. Having a cup of coffee, sitting outside and watching the sun just go from one side of the valley to the other makes me happy. Um, finding out my family is good and happy. That makes me definitely happy. Um, the recent announcement that my nephew and his, and his recent wife are expecting makes me ecstatic. It's going to be so exciting. So that makes me happy. There are a lot of things that make you happy. I think sometimes we just have to pay attention to what makes us happy and just kind of linger on it a little bit. You know, let, let, let that taste sink in a little bit, you know, because I think we linger too much on what makes us unhappy and sad. You know, all the happy moments just kind of, they're all there and they're so fast. Just grab onto them, hang on to them just a little bit longer. Be happier people. How's that for an answer? That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Victor. This was great. Um, it was definitely an eye opener. And I'm going to be sitting for the rest of the day going, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> And so it was, it was, it was, it was a positive. This is actually, this is a happy, there you go.